Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Today we want to talk about something that uh, it affects a hugely uh, important part of our new kind of faith-filled existence. But even though I'm talking to the Christians, I'm, I'm also really glad for any guests that are here, people that are maybe trying to re-engage with your faith or, or come back to faith. Uh, I think this is a great day for you to be here. I think this is a great day for you to kind of hear a little bit about what the church is supposed to be about, what the church was designed um, to be about. And we're going to be talking about some of what we do as Christians and then maybe talk about some of the parts that, that confuse us at times. And that's, you know, kind of why we do what we do, right? I mean, because we want to engage with faith. Some of, some of us were, you know, had faith maybe before, and now we're kind of trying to figure that out. And, and we, we look at the Bible, and honestly, like, you know, I'm a pastor, and I'll admit, sometimes you, you try and read the Bible cold turkey, like just start at the beginning and go all the way through. Like, it gets confusing, right? Like, you're good on page one and two. Page three's got the talking snake, a little bit weird there, right? But you get to page five, chapter five, and it's like, you know, this guy had this kid who had this kid who had this, and it's just like, close the book, put it to the side. Y'all are scared to admit that's exactly what you did too. Come on. But really, we, we get kind of confused about Christianity and faith and what that's all about. And, and one of the reasons that I'm glad to be talking about this today, and especially this kind of little short intro that I want to give, is that I think that hugely in, in, in the American version of church and in the Western world and, and Christianity, I, I think that, that faith, the idea of faith and what it means to have faith and just the word faith has kind of gotten like downgraded a little bit. It's gotten degraded a little bit. And it's kind of just come to, to mean this, this mental belief that we all have. Like, I believe in God. That's like a mental thing. It's purely a mental exercise. And, and so, you know, I'll go to a church and, and I'm going to a church because I believe in God and I kind of believe in the afterlife and, and we all want to go to the good place when we die. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Right? Like, nobody wants to head south. Like, you know, we just want to want to make sure that we make it to the right place. So I, I believe in God, and so then now tell me somebody that I'm good for after I die. Like, that's what it's about. It's like heavenly fire insurance. Like, you know, we're just, that's what church is to a lot of folks, and that's what, you know, faith seems to be to a lot of people. But then what's really confusing about that is when you get into, like, the Gospels, you know, like the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when you read what Jesus talked about and what Jesus seemed to be doing and, and what he was on mission to accomplish and what he promised, like it doesn't really seem like that's the context that he's talking in. It doesn't seem like those are the subjects that he's really concerned about. And he seems to talk a lot more about like this life. Like he said that I have come that they might have what? And have it to the full. Like, have life to the full. But then when we treat Christianity as kind of this heavenly fire insurance, and, and we just have this purely mental exercise of, I believe in God, so I'll shake somebody's hand, and now I'm, I've got my golden ticket for the afterlife. Like, it doesn't really feel like life gets very full at times, and faith can seem almost disappointing. And then we pray, and prayers don't seem to be answered. And we do good things, and bad things still happen. And then other people who do bad things, seems like good things happen. And it's just like, what? I don't get it. It's confusing, and we don't get it, and so a lot of people just kind of unplug. But that's not the story that the Bible is telling. That's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible opens up in Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, we see that God created a world, and it was a good world. 
And like over and over and over again, the writer is telling us, God did this and he saw that it was good. God made light and it was good. God made the the plants and it was good. Made the animals, made the ocean, and it was good. It was good. It was good. Everything was good. And then he gets to the end of chapter one and it says, and God created people, man and woman, in his own image. And man and woman were created to reflect God. Like we were to be this angled mirror, so to speak, that reflected God's goodness out into our world and kind of rule over this creation and be in charge of everything that's going on. And everything was good. But then, like I said, by page three, by chapter three, everything goes bad. And God's image gets really twisted. And we're supposed to, people are supposed to be a picture of God. But by chapter three, chapter four, like jealousy shows up on the scene. And then there's murder, like by chapter four, like what in the world? There's a murder of a brother, of his own brother. And there's hate and there's lust and there's lying and there's greed and there's violence, all of which make for great soap operas, but a terrible world. I was supposed to get a laugh. Like, yeah, nobody wants to admit they watch soap operas. I get it. Okay. But all of those things are great and interesting to watch for drama, but they make an absolutely terrible, terrible place to live. And God's image and God's creation that was all good had all turned bad. And there's a lot to unpack, and I don't have time to go into it this morning, but God was not surprised for this. God was actually ready for this. God had planned for this because he knew that humans had to have our ability to choose. And so into the chaos and into the violence and all of the the hurt that had just come into God's good world, God spoke a promise. And what God promised was that he one day was going to make everything good again. And what we see throughout the rest of the Bible story is God's plan unfolding as he begins to make everything good again. And so, yes, bad things still happen while God's plan is unfolding, but God's plan is still unfolding, and God will not be stopped, and he will make everything good again. Can I hear an amen from somebody that believes? And then we get like about to the middle of the Bible. And then we get to the, what's called the New Testament, the new part of the Bible, and we see someone stepping onto the scene named Jesus. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the Son of God. And over and over and over again, the Bible calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And what it's doing is it's referencing back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when people were created in the image of God, but then that picture got all twisted. What the New Testament writers are saying is, hey, we have a refreshed and restored picture of what God looks like and of what God is. And into the darkness of this world and the chaos and the violence of this world and the hate of our broken pictures of God comes Jesus, steps Jesus, the light of the world, to show us what God looks like, to show us what we were created to look like from the very beginning. And so Jesus is actually a type of, he's a kind of prototype He's like the first of his kind, of a restored humanity, of a restored you, and of a restored me, the new kind of humans that will live in God's recreated world. And so then the Christian life is not about like this waiting period, like I got my golden ticket, and now I'm just waiting, 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 waiting for God to pull the emergency cord and and take us out of here, but rather The Christian life becomes this life where we are progressively becoming the kind of people, the new kind of people that will live in God's new world. And in that new world, here's the beautiful thing. In that new world, God has promised to take all the broken things away and put all the good things back in their entirety. So in that new world, there's only going to be truth there. No one will ever lie to you in God's new world. 
And so here's the, here's the catch then. If you want to be a liar, you can be a liar. But that means that you are choosing to not be a part of God's brand new world. See, in God's brand new world, there is only going to be love. And so if there's only going to be love, then you can't hate. If you want to be a hater, you can be a hater. But by being a hater, you are disqualifying yourself from taking part of that new world where God has promised that no one will ever taste the poison of hate again. And maybe you heard about the shooting over these past few days down in New Zealand. It's just so absolutely tragic and and senseless that somebody would choose to hate, that somebody would choose to do violence in this world. But be assured, God has promised that one day he will remake this world, a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no more broken hearts in that world again. And so those people that have taken part in doing that, they have chosen to disqualify themselves. As they stand now, they have disqualified themselves from being part of God's new creation because in that creation there's going to be no, there will be no more broken hearts. So nobody in that kind of world will be the kind of people who break hearts. Nobody who lives in God's new world will be the kind of people that, that run away or walk away from loved ones. There will be no one in need in that new world. Can I hear an amen? There will be no more greed in that world. There will be this fearless and joyful generosity that we all feel with resources and money because we know that God is the one taking care of us and providing for us in that new world. No fear, so there's not going to be any violence, no stealing, nothing. No one with prejudice, no one inclined to violence will be citizens of God's new world. Well, that's what God is doing. That's what the Bible is a story of. It's God's rescue plan for his creation unfolding chapter by chapter and scene by scene. And, and, and this is evidence like all through Jesus' teaching. In fact, there's one really famous part where the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, you know, Jesus, can you teach us to pray? Because we thought we knew how to pray, but like our prayers don't seem like your prayers. And it seems like every time you pray, you seem to get like this weird energy from it. Like you spend a long time and like hours in prayer and like we're struggling to get through like the meal for our food. Can I hear somebody say amen this morning? Like God is good. God is great. Thank you for what's on this plate. All right, let's eat. Like we're just diving. Right. So Jesus teach us to pray. And so Jesus says, well, look, this is how you should pray. And you've probably heard this before, right? Our father who is in heaven Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom, your will be, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Kingdom come, will be done. Jesus isn't talking about an escape plan. He's talking about bringing God's promised new world into reality and overshadowing all of the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that all of us in this room have experienced at some point and living in a completely different existence entirely where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be, oh, man, like nobody's getting excited. I had a note in here to pause while you guys ran around the church for a little bit. It didn't happen. In the things that Jesus prays and even in the order, that Jesus praised them. It's all about a radical reorienting of ourself around the mission of bringing God's future into our present. God, let your kingdom come. God, let your will be done. And this is why Christians are supposed to be doing what Christians are supposed to be doing. Christians are saved from our old life to live a new kind of life and bring God's good and new future into our present and our broken world. 
That's what this life is all about. That's why we're Christians. That's why we gather. That's why we got all the systems in place we have and, and all of the things that we do because we are trying to bring about a brand new reality into our world. But here's the thing. It takes faith to believe that, right? Like guy on the street, lady on the street, they're not going to be a part of this. And you will never be a part of this new kind of life unless this faith, this trust, this conviction of what God is trying to accomplish, unless that fills your heart and fills your life. It's just too hard to imagine on its own, right? It's too hard to like dream of on, just on, from our own mind, from our own conceiving of what is absolutely possible. It, it, it takes some faith on our part, and, and it's hard for us. And then there are obstacles to us believing that. And some of the obstacles we have to believing in that new kind of world is the ways that people have talked about that new world in times past. Honestly, I mean, there are so many weird ideas about heaven and the new world. Like, honestly, it seems a little bit boring the way that it's been presented to us before, right? Like, everybody that knows how to party and have a good time, it seems like they're all heading south for the afterlife, right? Like, only the boring people are going to be in heaven, you know, and we're going to grow wings and, and sit on a cloud and play a harp, and it's like, can I at least borrow an electric guitar from somebody before you know, they, they head south. I mean, you know, and, and just the misconceptions about heaven and all the, the wrong ways that it's portrayed. It's just, it just makes heaven seem silly at times. Honestly, it does. Like really, the way that we have talked about heaven in the afterlife, it just seems silly at times. It seems almost hard to grab onto. It's, it's fluffy and soft, and maybe you talk about it at funerals, but you know, in the day-to-day -day grind, it, just, it weighs so heavy on us at times, it's hard to get a grip on a cloud, right? It's hard to hold on to a cloud. And so if we find ourselves not really enchanted, not really drawn and like longing for heaven, then maybe it's not really heaven that we have in mind. See, if heaven is not something that we're, we're like desperate to experience, if heaven is not something that we are praying, God, help me to get my children there. God, help me to get my loved ones that are sick and suffering in this life. God, I want them to experience your new and better future than maybe. Maybe we've just kind of gotten numb to the shocking horrors of this world. Maybe we've lost the echo. Maybe we can't really hear anymore the promise of God calling us to something better. And here's the thing about Christians. If you've been a Christian before, maybe you're coming back, or if you're a Christian now, but faith just feels a little disconnected, like you're hanging on because you know you're supposed to, but it doesn't really feel like it has a lot of meaning for you, then maybe, maybe we've lost sight of our mission to make that new world a reality in this world. Maybe we're missing some of the fulfillment that comes from making God's good world a reality in this world. And here's the thing, one of the areas of life that this most visibly gets affected by our lack of faith and our doubts and our misconceptions and honestly our fears, one of the most visible areas of our life where this it gets affected by all of that doubt and fear is our generosity and it's our giving. That's it. It's, it's true. Like, you know, here's the preacher talking about money again. Why do I have to show up today? It's a horrible day to show up to church. He's going to take an offering. I'm not going to take an offering. I promise you. But being a good person, well, everybody thinks being a good person is a goal worth having, right? There's some payoff to having that, that goal now, right? But giving my hard-earned money to a, to a church, man, I'll give a little bit of my money to a church, but if I give too much, I might not be able to afford my mortgage. 
If I give too much, I mean, I got three car payments, right? And cable is so high these days. And of course, the cost of Frappuccinos goes up every year, right? They just get adding new flavors and they raise the price and that's all they're doing, right? And just giving too much to the church is just going to be irresponsible, you know? So I got to figure out an amount that, like, it makes me seem glad there's a church. Like, I don't want to seem ungrateful because I think ungrateful is even a sin. I'm not sure. Like, I, I got to make sure that I don't mess up the afterlife. But let's not get crazy, and too often, and listen, I chose that wording on purpose, on purpose. Too often, our focus is on giving to a church and not to a mission. Too often, too often our, our, our focus is on giving to a building. It's on giving to a remodel and a renovation. And yes, we got a remodel and a renovation going on. But sometimes when we give, we think we're giving to a remodel. We think sometimes that we're giving to a preacher who obviously likes to eat. Like, you know, and our focus is it's off. And so the responsibility, and listen, I feel this responsibility. The responsibility that I face as a pastor is to make sure that your giving doesn't go to a church, but that your giving goes to the mission that God called us to be the church to accomplish. Now, listen, I, I do like to eat, and so do my kids, you know, but I'm not doing this thing to get rich. We have to update our building. We got cracked walkways and, and structure, you know, infrastructure that needs to be reinforced and parking lots that need reinforcement and carpet that's 20 years old and, and the steering committee. We're doing our best job, though, to make sure that we, we do all of these renovations in a way that honors your giving, but at the same way, at the same time, does not misdirect your giving. It's one of the reasons that we have chairs in here this morning instead of theater seats. We saved about $50,000 by not going with theater seats. Now, we saved that money, right? Just like your wife saved money by buying the dress that was on sale instead of, okay, I'm just going to move right. Men still don't get it. Maybe I can sneak that one by. You know, it's why we have chairs instead of theater seats. It's why we went with projectors instead of LED walls. We saved a ton of money by going with projectors instead of, of, of LED walls, but as I see it, when it comes to our giving as a church family, when it comes to our giving as people of the new world, I think there are two hurdles that we need to clear. And the first hurdle that we need to clear when it comes to Christian giving is that we need a recalibration of our focus. We give to a mission, not to a church. I'm going to say that again. We give to a mission. We do not give to a church. You are giving to God's purpose of bringing that new world into this world. Every time you give, you are giving for kingdom come. Every time you give at City Grace, you are giving for your will be done on earth as in heaven. And that's why Fairview was so important to me. That's why we had to do the Fairview project. And I did it right in the middle of the renovation. That made no sense to do it right in the middle of the renovation. But I wanted to make sure that we as a church family understand we're spending a lot of money, but the mission is still the most important thing. And so we're going to stop doing some things and not buy some things. And we're going to keep being the church on mission. Even as, we're, even as we're trying to take care of all of the things that we have to do as the church. But most of the worries... Most of the worries, and this recalibration of our focus is, is the number one thing, but the second thing, most of our worries that keep us from being as generous as we want to be, and I bet we could go around this room person by person and every single person in the room, I bet we'd all agree, I wish I could give more. 
All of us, I'm sure, if we went around there, I mean, who doesn't want to be that guy, right? I mean, I wish I could do more for other people, but most of the worries that keep us from being as generous as we want to be center around how giving will affect our comfort in this world. Hello. It's the truth. We fear not being able to afford a lifestyle. We worry about not having enough retirement. We worry about not having cool clothes or the latest clothes, right? We want the iPhone 15, only slightly better, but much more expensive, right? I mean, just, we do. We fear not being able to attain the commercial lifestyle that is advertised in this world. Now listen to me. Some of, some of you are hearing me say that Christians shouldn't have nice things, and that's not what I'm saying. Some of you are hearing me say that real Christians shouldn't have iPhones. I have an iPhone. I'm preaching from an iPad. And I got a MacBook Pro in my brief, briefcase in the office. So that means I'm not a real Christian. No, that's, that's not what that means. No, Jesus is not saying that he doesn't want us to have nice things. Jesus does not mind us having nice things. He just doesn't want nice things to have us. And if we are consumed, or if we are to be consumed with the wonder of God's new world, we cannot be irresponsible consumers of this one. So I'm not saying don't have nice things. I'm not saying, certainly not saying don't pay your bills. I'm not saying you have to wear your same old, way outdated and fashion history outfits all the time. And some of you are wishing I preached that before you came to church this morning. But I'm not saying that God hates you if you have a new car. Dave Ramsey hates you if you have a new car, but God still loves you, right? And, and some people go that route. Some people think, well, you know, if, if, you know, as if being wealthy is evil. Like, you know who's evil? Rich people and poor people and the people in between rich people and poor people, like you people and me people. That's who's evil, like, sin is not a discriminator. Like, sin is not prejudice, right? Evil does not, does not care who it affects. And that's an idea called asceticism, that I need to make my life as miserable as possible because then God will love me more. Listen, God loves you either way, but now you're just miserable. And you can't help anybody else now, right? So I'm not saying don't have nice things. What I am saying, church family, what I am saying, people of the kingdom, what I am saying, people of God's new world, is that our vision for generosity is too small. And the worries that keep us from giving more than we have given are completely irrational. I'm saying that there are times when we have put our faith in the hall closet and we only pull it out when it rains tragedy. I'm saying there are times that we have treated our faith and our belief in what God is going to do in the future, we've treated that like grandma's Bible. It's on a table by the front door and others look at it and say it's neat, but it doesn't really do anything for us. And we'll just think about heaven the next time we go to a funeral. But we don't consistently engage with the mission. We're not consistently thinking about what God is up to in this world and how God wants to do more in this world through you and through me. We don't consistently live and give like we are the partners of heaven to bring a new and good and restored kind of world into existence today. And we fall into the trap of imagining that our faith, is, it exists to make us comfortable. My faith in God my faith and my salvation is just something that, so that I don't get scared about dying. 
And it, and it has no real relation to our lives here and now. We imagine that it makes us comfortable in this world. And then we kneel to pray and we want help in praying. So we go to the Lord's Prayer and then the first half of the Lord's Prayer, like we found out, it doesn't even work for us because it's all about the mission and it's all about the kingdom and our Father who is in heaven. And man, yeah, it sure does feel like you're way up there. Hallowed be your name. And I'm not even really sure what hallowed means, right? I'm just copying you, Jesus, whatever you say. Your kingdom come, yes. Wait, what does that mean, your kingdom come, right? How does that relate to me? And I live in America, so I thought a democracy was the best form of government, right? Kingdom come. Sounds like an Avengers movie, right? Like, okay, God, come and avenge all of the sinners and your will be done. Okay, maybe that's a clue. Maybe that's where we start seeing ourselves in this prayer, God, do what you want to do through me. God, make happen in this world what you make happen all the time in your beautiful and perfect world. Tell somebody close to you, you were made for a better world than this one. Oh, come on, you got to say it with conviction, like preach at him. Get preacher face on. Here we go. Come on, tell him, you were made for a better world than this one. like 60% participation. We'll try and get the rest of you on board by the end. Say to somebody else, God is remaking you to make that world a reality. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe this. You've got to believe this. You've got to believe this. You have to believe this. This has to be who you are. It has to fill your heart and your brain and leak out of your hands and leak out of your mouth. And I was going to say nose, but we'll let that go for the kids. Like it's just got to, it's got to, I mean like some of y'all's cologne, it's just got to like permeate the air around. Let's back that off for next week if we can. Just but, but listen, most people think that the enemy of our faith is doubt, Right? I'm supposed to have faith so I can't have doubts. That's not the case. Doubt is actually necessary for you to have faith. Without doubt, you would never need faith. If you could see God, you wouldn't need to have faith in God. You could just scientifically prove his existence and be done with the debate. Doubt is not the enemy of your faith. Fear is the enemy of our faith. Fear is the enemy of our faith. And so when it comes to living and giving in such a way that we bring God's future into our present, we don't need to overcome our doubts. We need to overcome our fears. If you're not living and giving like a member of that new world, it's because you fear that God won't keep his word. But here's the thing, the early Christians faced the exact same challenges we do in this, this doubt and this worry and all of the anxiety, only more so for them. They had the same co-mission as us, right? The same uh, mission to bring God's new world into our present world. But only it was, for them it was brutal and it was dangerous. For them they were arrested and driven from their homes and turned into vagabonds and wanderers. And, and what's interesting to me is their response to the persecution, What's interesting to me is the way that they responded to the difficulty, how they overcame their fears and how they defeated their worries because their response was not protest. 
Their response was not forming political parties and, and, and all these things. Their, their response was not to build compounds and convents where they isolated themselves from the dangers of the world around them. The early Christians' response was to double down on living like they already belonged to a better world. That's what they did. They considered them citizens, themselves citizens of God's new reality. And they began to live in such a way that brought that reality from the future into their present. And so they were thrown into prison. But they didn't worry about having a rap sheet. They just started having a sing-along at midnight while they're in the prison. It didn't bother them. They were told that they were inferior to other races of people. They knew they were superior in God's eyes, and that's all they needed. So they just imitated Christ and served the people around them in complete love and generosity. They ate with citizens of different nations in a time that was way more divided than our time here. But it didn't matter because they considered themselves citizens of a different nation already. They spent or they gave money generously that could have bought comfort in this world because they believed the promise that their generosity was buying far more comfort in another world as it was. They lived their lives with a focus on the world to come. They gave themselves over to making that new world a reality in this world. And the early church did all kinds of things that make us Americans uncomfortable. They ate together like all the time. When's the last week when you had more than one dinner guest, right? When's the last time you've had more than one family over to eat within the time of a week? They cared for the sick in their homes. When's the last time we have taken soup and a get well card to a brother or sister that's sick? When's the last time we sat by a couch or sat by a bed and shared the Bible together? Or maybe sang a song. Or maybe if you can't sing, don't sing a song. Maybe that's your gift to those people, right? Just, but when's the, when's the last time that we did that? When's the last time that we acted like the early church? And Paul, who had gone around and started most of the early churches and certainly seen a lot more than that, Paul one day was bragging about one church that the math of their offering just doesn't add up. He was blown away by their generosity. He didn't think they could have been able to give anything to this need that was present in that world. The Jewish Christians were being persecuted and driven out of Jerusalem, driven out of the nation of Israel. They had no homes, had no food, had no more retirement, had nothing but the clothes on their back. And so Paul started rallying all of the other churches in the Mediterranean Rim to collect an offering to give to these people so that they could be helped in their persecution. And the church in Macedonia, he didn't think they could give anything, and he wouldn't even let them give an offering. At first, they had to beg him. So Paul, one day, he's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about this offering they want to pick up, and he starts bragging to the Corinthian church about the Macedonian church. And let's see what Paul bragged about in the Macedonian church. And he said to the Corinthians, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Like there was something natural going on there, but then there was a point where something supernatural took over. It came to the end of themselves and then God stepped in. It was a grace that God gave. Verse two, in the midst of a very severe trial, did everybody say recession? Everybody say housing bubble. Everybody say layoffs. Everybody say China tariffs. Everybody say outsourcing. Everybody say industrial revolution. Severe trials. Macedonia was just decimated by a famine. People there were 
poor and broke and could barely eat and, and all of this stuff in, a, in the midst of a very severe trial. Look at this. They're overflowing joy? Like how in the world can you be happy in a recession? How can you have what's described as overflowing joy and be fearless in a bad economy? And the answer was because the economy was in this world, but it wasn't a bad economy in their world. They didn't belong to this world. They were already living for another, for another world. And Paul said their, their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. Like that was a dry and dusty hole in the ground. We didn't think any water was coming out of that. But out of their poverty burst this geyser of generosity. He goes on, he says, for I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They gave to the end of themselves and then God stepped in and took over. And it's like they had help from somewhere else and they gave and gave and gave and we were amazed and they did it all on their own. I didn't guilt trip them into it. I didn't, I didn't beg them for it. I didn't hire Sarah McLaughlin to sing in the arms of an angel and show them pictures of hungry kids. That's not what happened. It was all entirely on their own. In fact, they urgently pleaded with us, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, everybody say privilege, of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Can you imagine being so broke that you have to beg the preacher to let you give an offering? Like, preachers will take money from anybody. Come on. Like, especially those ones on TV. They'll take money from anybody. It does not matter. These people were poor, man. And Paul said they begged us. And you know why they had to beg Paul? Because Paul had told them no at first. Paul's been shipwrecked. Paul's been hungry. Paul's been in prison. Paul's been a fugitive from different cities. Paul's been arrested. Paul was poor. And then Paul's like, there's poor and then there's the Macedonian Christians. Like, you guys just don't even give an offering. And Paul's like, these people, they blew our minds. They exceeded our expectations. They gave to these Christians that were driven from their homes, even though they never met them, even though they had only heard about them. These Macedonian Christians started giving and giving and giving. And when they couldn't give anymore, God's grace took over, and they continued to give supernaturally. And then it's like Paul wants to let us know the secret. It's like he wanted the Corinthians to know the secret. And Paul's like, you want to know how they could do this? Do you want to know how they could face their hunger and the fear and the worry and, 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 and just, you know, fight it all off and act so unexpectedly? I mean, because none of us expected that. Paul's like, this is the way they got past their worry. This is the way they got past their fear. Before they gave a dime to us, before they went to citygrace.church and clicked give online up in the upper right-hand corner, you can go there right now if you want. Before, before they signed up to tithe, before they bought a pair of shoes for any of the children at Fairview Elementary, they gave something else to someone else, and that happened first. Even though they heard about the need through us, their giving did not start with us. And he says in verse 5, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. Now, don't rush past this too quick. We see that word Lord and we just think it's another name for Jesus. But that's actually a title 
that is given to Jesus in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word kyrios. It means a, someone having power. It means someone who's in control. It means a ruler. It means someone with authority. It means a king. Guess what? A kyrios has a kingdom. In other words, he's saying the Macedonian Christians did not give themselves to a savior that they hoped would give them a cloud in the sky in the great by and by. These Macedonian Christians knew that this was about kingdom work. This wasn't about getting a golden ticket for the next life, and so who cares what happens in the rest of this life? This was king work. This was kingdom work. This was Kyrios work. This was Lord work. This was about bringing God's rule and reign into this world. This was about thy kingdom come through us. This was about thy will be done on this earth through us as it is in heaven. This was about making Jesus a king in reality where some people only saw Jesus being a king in fantasy. But notice, they gave themselves to the Kyrios. They gave themselves to the Lord. They gave their identity and their reputation, and they gave their salvation and their hope to the king, to the Kyrios. They gave their protection and their worry about food and their worry about housing and clothes. And they said, these things are all God's problem now. Because we have given ourselves to him. After all, your kids aren't worried about what they're going to eat. Who takes care of your kids' food when they're hungry? Grandparents. Like, come on, you guys, you guys are unplugging. Who takes care of your kids' food when they're hungry? Who gives your kids shoes when they need shoes on their feet? You do. And when you concern yourself with giving yourself to the king, when you make sure that your life has been given over to the Lord and you belong to him, when you make that stand and that declaration of your faith in your life that I am a son, I am a daughter of God, then the responsibility for taking care of your needs no longer rests in your hands. So what are we afraid of? The reality and the realization of whose we are should remove all fear and all worry and all anxiety from our minds and our hearts when it comes to our finances and our resources. If you're worried about your money, then it means you don't really understand your God. Hello, if your fears are bigger than your faith in your God, you need a better God. I'm just going to say it. Like if your God's not big enough to help you out financially and to provide for you, get a better God. Hello, somebody. I love, I'm 43 years old. I've been a sports fan my whole life. Guess what kind of sports fan I am now? A bandwagon sports fan. Do you know how awesome it is that my team wins the Super Bowl every single year? It is so cool. My team wins the NBA championship year after year. They are undefeated. It's amazing. Hello, you need to get a better God. You need to make sure that your God is undefeated. You may need to make sure that your God can never fail. You, never, you need to make sure that your God always has enough. You need to make sure that your God will never run out of what you need. You need to make, oh, come on, somebody, I'm preaching already on a Sunday morning. How big is your God? 
How big are your fears? And then compare the two. And if your God isn't bigger than your fears, then you need to see your God in a fresh way. He is the Lord of every Lord. He is the King of every King. He is the God of all creation. So here's the thing. When someone who has given themselves to the Lord reaches a limit on giving, we have options that non-Christians don't have. See, if a non-Christian doesn't look out for themselves, then maybe nobody else will. But Christians have the promise that the Lord is looking out for us. This world says you need to look out for your own interests. Our God says, look out for the interests of others. And while you're busy taking care of others, and while you're busy putting my kingdom first, I will take care of you. Now, you got several years of banking history under your belt and handling your own finances. Who do you trust more with money, you or God? That's yeah, like that sobering moment, right? Like nobody wants to say it. Yeah. We all trust God. I just bought a $200 ice cream maker. Jesus, please take the wheel <laughs> while I eat this ice cream, right? Like that's some good stuff. Listen, give God control. Let God take care of you while he uses you to take care of others. And you're not giving to a church. You are giving to a mission to bring a new and better world, to reach up into heaven and to grab hold of it and to bring it down into this hurting and broken and dark and chaotic world. Hello. That's what it's all about. And I realize that this sermon has been a little more talking than it has been inspirational perhaps, but... This is so important. Christians, we've got to get this right. City Grace, we've got to get this right. We are not battling our doubts. We are battling our fears. We are not fighting our doubts. We are fighting our worries. And so here's what we're going to do. After church, we're all going to go to the ATM. We're going to pull out everything we have, and we're going to give it to the first person we see with a cardboard sign. Who's in? No. Rita, God bless you. Rita's always in for that stuff. I set you up, Rita. That's on me. I'll give for you to the cardboard sign guy, I promise. Now listen, listen. I am not saying be random and pointless with giving. That's not what I am saying. Listen, and we're going to talk next week. We're going to start talking next week about how to prepare ourselves to respond to God's opportunities. What I am talking about is an intelligent, a sincerely sought-out direction. God, how do you want to use me in this world so that I can build a bridge to your future world? And the Macedonians got this. They understood this. And so they gave themselves, first of all, to the Kyrios. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They were citizens of his new world, and it made them fearless. It made them fearless. And so here's what we can learn from the Macedonian Christians. We should worry less about what can happen to us in this world and give ourselves to what God wants to happen through us in this world. We should worry less about what can happen to us in this world and give ourselves to what God wants to happen through us in this world. Now, how many of us know from experience, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of us know from experience that Christians can end up outside of God's will? 
we can end up off mission. We can end up doing our own thing and outside of what God had designed us for. Not because we're evil, not because we don't love God or we're ungrateful, but if we as the church, good Christian people, if we end up outside the will of God, lacking faith and lacking the works that bring his future into our present, we will have been put there by our fear and our worries. So worry less about what can happen to you and give yourself to what God wants to do through you in this world. Can I hear an amen this morning as the musicians come? Now, I wanted to share this, and then we're all going to stand in just a moment. Not yet. We're going to stand. We're going to sing a song together, and we'll give God thanks for all that he's done for us, and then I'll let you go home. But I, I grew up in a pastor's home, and from the time I was a kid, from the time I got money, my dad, was, my dad was hardcore, man. You got Christmas gifts. No, he wasn't with Christmas gifts. But with other stuff, like you gave 15%. I gave 15% of everything that came in. I gave 10% to tithes with support and ministry. I gave 5% offering from the time I was a kid. I just, it's just what you did with money. There wasn't any emotion attached to it. I mean, you were, you were given money from somebody else, and so you gave you know, a portion of that money back. And there was no fear in my giving. Because guess what? I wasn't responsible for buying my clothes. Guess what? I didn't worry about what was going to get put on the table. And we always had clothes. And we always had stuff put on the table. Sometimes it was bologna and beans. But not together. Like <laughs> dad's Mexican and mom was white. So one night it'd be beans, one night it's bologna. It was different, right? But I always knew that my parents would give me what I needed. And I was like that well into my 20s. <laughs> Always had clothes to wear. Always had plenty to eat. And then I got a job. And I started working full time. I started actually making a pretty decent wage. Guess what? I still gave my 15%. But it didn't seem to leave my hands as quickly as before. Right? Right? Every time I'd write a check or pull out cash, now, now there was some emotion in the mix, something I had never experienced before. And the percentage was the same. But man, that amount had changed. And now it wasn't just like 10 or $20. You know, now, it was, now it was in the hundreds, right? And, and all of a sudden, you know, there was a hesitation. Well, if I, if I give this, then I can't get that. Right? And, and, and what if I don't have enough for, for this? Or what if I don't have enough for that? What if I can't afford this? Or what if I can't save up enough to buy that? And it didn't stop me from giving my, t my 15% because I still lived with my parents when I first got my job. And, you know, but it sure took some of the joy out of it. And I began to what if my way out of cheerful giving, right? And I know that we're supposed to be a cheerful giver. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. What happened is the amount started going up. I started becoming a fearful giver. Changed from cheerful to fearful. And I, I began to feel that taking care of myself was my responsibility. I began to fear that I wouldn't be able to. And I was being irrational about, listen to me, I was being irrational about my relationship to God. I had given him my life. I was not my own. I was the son of David and Tanya, but much more than that, I was the son of God. And you are sons 
of God and you are daughters of God and it is not your job to take care of you. That's God's job. And that doesn't mean that you go be a dummy with your money. That's not what I'm giving you permission to do. But there is no more fear attached to it because God has promised to never leave us and God has promised to always provide And we have to decide if we really believe what we say we believe. We have to decide if we really believe that if we will seek first the kingdom of God, that all the things we need, worry about food and worry about clothes and worry about tomorrow, that all that we need, God will supply according to His riches and glory. And see, I think this is where a lot of us are as Christians. We're not stingy. We're not bad people. We're not evil people, you know, we're not ungrateful people, but when it comes to giving, we are concerned people. And we're hesitant people. And we're worried that if we don't take care of ourselves first, then nobody else will. But Jesus and his disciples and the apostles and the early church and the Macedonian Christians and the Corinthian Christians, they all were very clear on this point that any fear about putting God's kingdom first is irrational fear. It's like a farmer who would be worried about losing seed that he has, and so he never plants any. See, the Bible ties our giving to the principle of sowing and reaping. God did that, not me. I didn't make that verse up. God did. We have been giving seed, and we are responsible. We're on mission to produce a spiritual crop. But if we hold on to that seed in fear then we will never reap a harvest of God's new world in this present broken world. And fear of not being able to take care of ourselves, it robs us of joy and it undermines our faith and it locks us in and locks God out of our finances. See, in the last point, and then I'm done, we'll stand this morning. But when we begin to see our resources from God's perspective, the fear changes The fear goes from not having enough to having sown too little in God's kingdom and for God's kingdom. God, help us to understand who we are in relation to you, that you're in control of it all, and that you hold us in the palm of your nail-scarred hands. Help us to trust in you, Jesus. Amen. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.